Welcome, everybody, to this edition of The Edge on 2XZone.com. I'm your host, Jason Frieda, joined by the man known as The Beast, Dan Severn. Dan, thanks for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me there, Jason. Hey, Dan, so the last time I personally saw you was at Ring of Honor's final battle last December. So what were your thoughts on ROH, and how did that appearance actually come about? Well, I mean, it's, uh, I, I like the part that uh, Jim Cornette is uh, putting together. It just, it, it's putting wrestling back into, <laughs> into professional wrestling. You know, I, I guess I kind of get turned out sometimes when, when it seems like there's, there's more promos, uh, long drawn out storylines. I'd rather see, you know, the market says professional wrestling. Give people some professional wrestling. Yeah, I think the originally met uh, Jim, uh, you know, when, when I had my stint with the uh, WWF, now known as WWE, when I was there, I got a chance to know him. He was actually very frustrated with the uh, with the creative team because he says they don't have a clue as to what to do with you. He says, he says, he says you're, you're, you're the most marketable guy out of anyone here because you're legitimate. <laughs> there you go. And uh, he, he said, he said, you should just be going down there and just, belt off the side, just caught them dismantle people. So literally, he actually had come up with the idea of A, B, and Goldberg before there was ever ever was a Goldberg in WCW. Ken Shamrock was actually supposed to be at that show, but he had a conflict. Were you aware of those plans for Ken to be there as well? I, I did believe, uh, I, I was aware of it, that he was going to be there, because it was going to be, uh, Ken was going to be a coach uh, for or one of the athletes that was going to be coached for the other athletes. It just gives this history between Ken and myself. So it, it was just a continuation of a storyline from competitors to now coaching on the, on the opposite, opposite sides of the spectrum. And it definitely would have been great to see you guys together in the same arena again, for sure. Speaking of Ken, um, I know recently you said that 2012 is, is probably going to be your last year of fighting, and you named a couple guys that you like to have matches with, Ken being one of them. And after that, that Ring of Honor show, I know you did a, a little recording where you kind of laid that out to Ken and, and offered the challenge up to him. Well, he was on our show, and he actually accepted your challenge and said that he would love to fight you this year. And so did anything ever materialize from that? Well, so far, not. But I'll, although I do have a couple of different promotions talking to me, it, it, I'll say it's a possibility, but uh, to me, it, it'd be a rather fleeting type of a possibility. I, I, I've been thinking about getting out of MMA for like the last couple of years, just by the time moving on. Um, and that's that a thing for any athlete to finally leave something that's been such a, uh, a huge part of their life. What, uh, what I was looking for was one more uh, defining moment type of, of a match, something that I could put all my, all my eggs into and, and uh, train hard for and, and just know that win or lose, this is my last rock. Well, I put out a couple of years back, I actually put out uh, phone calls and emails and stuff like that to uh, Shamrock, to uh, Mark Coleman, and to Hoist Gracie. Yes, I spoke to two out of the three directly. It just boiled down to logistics, and I hate to say it, money. So I may or may not get that uh, that last hurrah. I just finally decided that uh, I put out a press release as of uh, December 2011 to all the various promotions and or promoters that I knew. I'm just letting them uh, know that 2012 will be my final year of competition. And if they were ever thinking about using me, this is come 2013. If you come to me at that point, then I'll be like, no. <laughs> I, I, if I gave you forewarning, I'm going to be putting my efforts up like that into other, uh, other 
areas. I'll still be in mixed martial arts, just no longer the competitor. I, I run my own mixed martial arts company known as The Danger Zone, and I run a small professional company known as uh, Price of Glory. I have a 10,000 square foot training facility on my property. I bounce back and forth between Michigan, Arizona, and uh, the new attitude is back, back forth into West Virginia. I do believe that I will probably you know, end up with a home in all three areas, but utilizing some type of uh, sporting background and business-wise, that will be keeping me bouncing between those three locations. So how do you cut up your time between those those two promotions, your your MMA training facility and, and your wrestling promotion? I, I, I tell you, Jason, you know, and to put it kind of bluntly, I have so many iron in the fire that I'm not real happy at times with the effort that goes into it. I kind of, you know, I kind of feel that I put it, to put it real bluntly, sometimes it's just a half-ass effort. But I know that my half-ass effort is probably better than what most people could do if that was the only thing that they had to concentrate on. That That is my, my gift. I am... Uh, meticulous with uh, details and stuff like this. Sometimes it's kind of hard for me to uh, not be that uh, micro-manager. I like to uh, give people jobs and duties and, and hope that they'll get done just knowing it's not you doing it. And that's the hard part about it. If I, if I could really cut out cookie-cutter clones, I'd like to have another half a dozen of me, uh, just younger models, because I, I would definitely keep one of them out there as an MMA competitor, because it's... Uh, with the opportunities that are rising right now, it's, it's unbelievable the opportunities that, that these young competitors have. Sky's the limit. From a trainer perspective, what are some of the names of guys that, that have trained with you over the years? Well, I mean, the people that I've, I've simply just helped uh, get their start in mixed martial arts, probably the best uh, two names uh, would be uh, Don Fai and uh, Rashad Evans. Uh, Don Fai definitely from that, that old school, the old Bart era still. Don was one of my wrestlers at uh, Michigan State, excuse me, at Arizona State University when I was coaching there. And Rashad Evans, uh, you know, he uh, started coming on down when he found out I had a training facility down there doing his uh, training for mixed martial arts. Did uh, the first of his amateur matches on uh, my company, uh, you know, Danger Zone. And then uh, did, I, I believe he did his first couple of pro matches with me as well. And then basically I'm the guy that helped get him into the Ultimate Fighter show as a heavyweight, even though Rashad was not a heavyweight, you know, he's a 205 pounder, but, but knowing that a 205 pounder as a wrestler means that they weigh more like around 225. Right. So he would have he just been a small heavyweight, but, uh, well, you look at wrestlers in general, and if you look at it per weight class, I don't care what organization, if they look at the Strike Force, Bellator, UFC, King of the Cage, Greater Challenge, if you look at the top 10 guys per weight class, I'll bet eight or nine of those guys per weight class are wrestlers. And I would say that just uh, to brag about wrestling, but uh, and, and not just a guy that just spent one or two years in high school and uh, you know then, then quit. I'm talking about a guy that actually uh, did something in the sport because there is already a work ethic and a mindset. So I contribute all my success to my, my amateur wrestling background. Well, you briefly mentioned the no-holes-barred days of UFC, and, and those are obviously the days when, when you were at your peak and, and champion of the UFC. What are your thoughts between how it's moved from the no-holes-barred days to the UFC product in the present day? Well, honestly, Jason, it had to make changes, concessions, whatever you want to call it here, 
Otherwise, we would be talking about it in the past tense. You know, there's been three different ownerships of the Oakland Fighting Championship Company. The very first one was Hoy and Gracie and Art Navy. And uh, then it went from, from there to the Singapore Entertainment Group, Bob Myerowitz. And Bob probably owned it during the worst time because you had Senator John McCain uh, that was uh, rallying uh, the forces between legislators, uh, athletic commissioners, and politicians to simply snuff out this no hold the barred uh, comp- uh, competition format. And then uh, with the Fertitta brothers, I think owned them something like uh, 90% of that company, and then Dana White owned them, I think, around either 10% or less. I know just within the last year or so, uh, that company has sold off either 10 or 11% of the company to an international firm because they're looking for more and more expansion overseas, Asian market, Chinese market, uh, you know, Indian market. So they're just looking for ways to branch it out and to make it even a bigger sport yet. Let's talk a little bit about your UFC career. So what would you attribute to your start in the fighting business? Well, honestly, there, Jason, it's probably kind of a sad story. I hate to have all the listeners uh, sit there crying about the you know, Dan Severns and the Huawei. You know, make a long story short, I ended up leaving the coaching ranks at Michigan State University because, you know, I wasn't making uh, all that much money. I'm thinking, you know, I got a young family and stuff like this. I, I can't do this. I can't do this to my family. So I left uh, Michigan State University and I went to work in the uh, automotive industry. I, you know, I had a degree. My degree was actually in education, but I, I was... Uh, Quite a, quite a ways into my master's program, and uh, my master's program was what they call a master's of education with the field of specialization, my field of specialization being manufacturing. I got into uh, working in the automotive industry as quality control, you know, to read instrumentation and stuff like that. So I ended up doing that for about a year, and the guy that, and I was commuting 82 miles one way, because I didn't always talk with my family in case the job didn't work out. Well, the guy who hired me at, at one plant, went on down to another location down in Coldwater, Michigan. He wanted me to be part of uh, this, this new venture. He's offered me more money at now, and he's offered me profit sharing. You know, all the bells, buzzers, and whistles. I'm looking at my age. I'm thinking, okay, I've got to do the corporate gig here now, give up the next 30 years of my life, and then retire to go watch, blah, blah, blah. And I asked him, I asked him, I said, well, how long do I have? He said, two weeks. Jason, in two weeks, I sold a home, I bought a home, I went to work, and at the end of the first week, I did not have a job. Wow. And that, and that, was, that was kind of devastating there to me. Um, couldn't even find the guy that, that hired me. He was like missing in action. Um, I talked to an attorney friend of mine, as to any kind of recourse, stuff like that. And he's like, uh, what the at will clause? I didn't have, I didn't have anything to stand on. And then he's basically just saying, you need to sign up for unemployment. It's the first thing you need to do. Like, oh. I said, how? I said, I've never been unemployed in my entire life. And this was back in uh, 90, uh, fall of 91, 92, when uh, the United States was in the last big recession at that point. Right. All about that same time, uh, the United States Olympic Committee came up with a new rule that athletes could be both amateur and professional simultaneously. Unless you're in high school athletics or collegiate high athletics, you'd still be governed by NCAA rules or your high school athletic association rules. I was well past my collegiate eligibility so I could have my cake and eat it too. By day I'm looking for a job. I had, I had been approached by some professional wrestling companies in the mid-80s. Now I, I have a chance to really explore it. So a friend of 
mine, who was actually the uh, president of the Michigan Wrestling Club, which was another company I had worked for, was also a professional wrestler. So I used to talk to him about that. I basically uh, said I need to do something here now, and uh, and he's one of the, yeah, introduced me to El uh, El Snow, and uh, I used to travel to Lima, Ohio. Was getting doing my professional wrestling training that night, and I, lo and behold, about the same time there, I get a flyer about a tough man contest coming up. Up that contest, three women rounds, and there were, I believe, 16 ounce gloves. And they're just, you know, just guys are just throwing wild haymakers and stuff like that. They beat each other. Right. Jason, I never, I never balled my fist up against my fellow man, but I needed a thousand dollars. And I just tell people, two days, seven minutes later, I walked out of that ring with a thousand dollars. And so my, my pugilistic career sprung at that point in time and I have never looked back and that literally some of that same fuel still fuels me to this day. I guarantee you one day uh, there will be a movie up um, I endured what I went through and, and, and come out on top of, of all of it. Let's talk about one fight in your career that really sticks out the most in your mind. I, I don't have really one match that, that really stands out in my career. I would say that uh, one event uh, if I had to highlight this one event would have been going for the ultimate, ultimate title. Uh, that was the first time that the Ultimate Fighting Championships uh, were bringing back various champions and or runner-up. Again, to your, your listeners there, most of them don't have a clue when we mention words like no holds barred because that's where the roots of mixed world mixed martial arts came from. It only had to, it morphed into from, from no holds barred to mixed martial arts because of, of what was coming down upon Bob Meyer with stuff like this, a lot of concessions had to be made. You know, the, what people are watching today, mixed martial arts, has approximately 37 rules. Part of those 37 rules, there are weight classes, there are time periods, the athletes wear gloves, and they fight one opponent in an evening. Back in the no-barred era, you only had to abide by two rules. Those being, do not fight your opponent, do not stick your fingers in their, in their eye sockets. No eye gouging. That was the only two rules. Anything else you could possibly think of, when you were good to go, and I used to tell people, let your imagination go wild as to what you could do to other people. Because when I make that comment, I have all these uh, people out there, they're like, well, you, you could headline, you could be even up. I go, did you fight it? Or did you stick it in someone's eye? <laughs> I said, you were good to go. <laughs> and uh, people are just blown away. And I said, there's no way classes. There was no time period. It was bare knuckle action, and it was an eight-man tournament. You had to face and defeat three opponents in less than a two-hour pay-per-view. And to be point blank, I, I, don't, I don't say this as being bagocious. I always tell people I should be fight back. I am the only triple crown champion in the UFC's no holds barred era. And since it's illegal to do that, I'm it. And when you look at what I accomplished over the years in that arena, take into account the age that I started just prior to turning 37 years of age. Most fighters would have retired at that point in time. World record with seven title counts. I've got 20 or 21. I lost count. And uh, there's only four people in the world that have 100 MMA matches. I'm one of those cast of characters. The ironic part is I faced and defeated, and the closest one to my age is 15 years. So to me, it's like, is there 
never will be. I'm a unique commodity to what I've done in my amateur wrestling career, what I've done in my professional wrestling career, and what I've done in the mixed martial arts arena. When you look at age, accountability, matches, lack of training, and, and I say that because you might think, well, what does that mean? And all my cage fighting matches, all the years I've been doing this, I've only taken out two training camps. Once went about 32 days of my life. Once when I took out 35 days of my life, so I literally have everything out on hold. And when people think about this, like, wow. And the fact that I am lifetime chemical free. I can't say that about most people I have gone against. Let's talk a little bit about pro wrestling, since you just brought it up. So you transitioned over to pro wrestling in 1995, I believe it was, with the NWA. Is that right? Uh, I believe it was around that 90s. Well, between uh, 92, actually, was when I started doing the professional wrestling. Yeah, because as soon as that, that green light came, I was trained in professional wrestling. And I took to it like a fish takes the water in, in the aspect that, well, I had to put food on, on the table. I had to keep it over my, my like, kids' uh, head and stuff like this. So um, I, I did not train all that long before I actually had my very first match. And was doing matches, I used my real... Uh, I used my real name, I used my real amateur credentials, and really, only after about, I think, four or five matches, I had to be on a show. A uh, uh, gentleman was, uh, was up from Nashville, Tennessee. Um, his ring name was a Dirty White Boy, and I think a few other aliases that he went by. And uh, he asked me if that was legit, and I said it was. He says, you want to be over in Japan doing this thing called shoot fighting or shoot wrestling? I gave him a business card, athletic resume. Three days later, I get a phone call. Ten days later, I'm in Nashville for for tryout. Thirty days later, I'm in Tokyo, Japan, in front of a 12,000 seat crowd. Did not have a clue as to what I was doing. All I know is my agent opponent kicked me half a dozen times really, really hard. I grabbed him, flinging him all over the place, dismantling him, much to the crowd's uh, uh, delight. And the uh, Japanese interpreter simply said, Don Saban, you will become a superstar in Japan. And, I, and I'm like, <laughs> I don't know about that superstar stuff, but I'm definitely going to protect them. Let's talk a little bit about when you moved into the WWF, now known as WWE. How did that transition go, and, and who actually got you over there? Well, I mean, originally, it was with the idea that, uh, you know, they found out both that Ken Shamrock and uh, myself, we both had a professional wrestling background, and they thought that they could continue this uh, feud between each other from the uh, mixed martial arts days, carrying that back over to the professional wrestling days. Unfortunately, it never materialized. Ken went to work almost one year ahead of myself. In the process of me uh, negotiating with them, um, I was I became the very first non-exclusive athlete ever in the WWF history. I could work for anybody, including WCW and ECW, because they both existed at the time. And I think that was also probably... Uh, the Achilles heel that, that made it difficult for them wanting to, to do any kind of a push with me because they realized, you know, if we throw a belt onto Dan or title onto Dan, what's to stop him from going over to WCW or an ECW? Right. But at the same time, Jason, you know, the professional wrestling industry is a very industry because it's that world of fantasy, there's a lot of politicking that takes place. I'm not a good politician. I always tell people I'm politically incorrect. 
I should be, I, I call it as I see it. Really to set that point home, one day, well, I, you know, just rather young in my career with the, with the WWF, probably just a couple weeks into it, here I am sitting in the, in the, the, the cafeteria, having some eat, to be working, working away, making phone calls, stuff like this. Jim Cornette comes by and he puts me on my shoulder and he says, Dan, he says, he says, he says, I'm not sure what you're doing. He says, but you make all the boys are nervous around you. Huh. And I, I look at him, Jim, I says, I'm not doing anything. I says, I said, with any company, you have good days, you have bad days. I said, I'm sitting back and, I, and I'm watching theater unfold before me. And he goes, well, what do you mean? I, I said, what's professional wrestling? Professional wrestling is nothing but the world fantasy. It's like Halloween. You get to dress up and be somebody else that night. And I started pointing on the cafeteria and I pointed at what some of these so-called uh, superstars. I go, and you see, they're over there and they're talking to this. I'm just creative uh, team member. I go, why do you think he's going to talk? He go, pop a ticket. He's trying to get, he's trying to get a push, trying to push an angle, all for his own personal agenda. I said, short of him pulling out a tube of chapstick and kissing this man right on the ass, I said, how much more can he really be doing? <laughs> ironically, ironically, a couple weeks later, Vince McMahon launches. The kiss my ass club. There you go. Now, what where do you think that idea might have stemmed from? I, now, I guess we didn't know you were part of creative, Dan. Uh, me neither. <laughs> when, I, when I finished up saying to Jim, I said, Jim, I said, I'm not a politician. I said, I can't do that. I said, I would rather shove my size 12 foot up someone's ass as opposed to kiss it. Guess who was not asked to be in the Kiss My Ass Club? Dan Severn. Yours truly, yeah, exactly. So I think I, I should be credited with giving them that idea. At the same token, I wasn't asked to be in it either. That is definitely a funny story for sure. Yep. Now, you were supposed to be on the first ever NWA TNA show, but I know that didn't pan out. What what happened there? Well, call being a busy person. And I had, I had a scheduling conflict. And really, I had no scheduling conflict. It's just that TNA, being a brand new product, weren't getting the kind of ticket sales that they were hoping for. So they were trying to start a company and launch an angle right off the get-go, and that was to have a heavyweight title bout on there. And I, and I told them, and they used to run their pay, their pay-per-views on a Wednesday night. And I, I go, guys, I said, I've got a commitment. I've had my commitment on my schedule for some time now. I said, I can't do the particular Wednesday night that you're looking for. I said, but I'm available the Wednesday after, the Wednesday after that, and the Wednesday after that. But they really kind of pushed me where it was like, I can't do it. I gave my I gave my word. I'm slated to do something. And that's, again, that's one of the things kind of boggles my mind about the wacky world of professional wrestling. The longer I've been around it, the less I understand it because it does not follow the most basic principles of business 101. It just, there's, there's so much, there's so much lying and deceit. To me, it's like, uh, even when Vince got a chance to know me, he's like, you know, as I'm in the office with him and, and, and Jim Ross, you know, certain things are being discussed, just that a couple of different dates and times, stuff like that came up. 
finally, he cycles as well. How old are you? And I said, well, I'm 40. And then he looks at Jim Lee. He says, well, Jim, who's, who's the oldest rookie ever been? And Jim Lee said, because points over there, lean over to me. He says, Jim, but I, I, I did not look my age, nor did I ask my age in, in, in the process. But, uh, you know, my whole point of telling that story was, it's what's so comfortable with me today. So how do you want to operate? Do you want to work on a handshake? Do you want to uh, pull out a napkin and write it on up? I said, Vince, as much as I would like to believe that that's, uh, uh, that could actually take place nowadays, I said, I'm a little bit jaded. I said, I would rather know that it hit paper in black and white. Well, was there any one so, guy in the wrestling business that you, you really did particularly enjoy working in the ring with? Uh, well, old art. Because of, his, because of his own amateur wrestling background, I could do things with him I couldn't do with a lot of other guys. You know, he, had, he actually had a good sense of humor about him and stuff like that as well. So I really enjoyed uh, the, the few different matches that, that we, uh, we had with each other. Even one particular match, I mean, literally, you know, he lifts me up and uh, goes to a power driver, and because he wore a baby or something like this, I actually split a little bit too far south. So when, I did, when he did bring me down, Oh, he, he landed me on that top of my head, and, and I received a stinger, and I, and I laid there. This was actually during a, an actual live show, and it freaked him out just the way that I laid there. So still, and I, I had a mouthpiece. I used to wear a mouthpiece in, and I shut the mouthpiece out with my tongue, and I rolled across my face and landed on the canvas. And I, I, and I do believe he thought that he'd either paralyzed me or hurt me really bad. And uh, literally, he, he, you know, this is a live show. He's trying to stay in character. And as he kind of just kneels down to find me, and he's kind of like, dude, he's like, he's sitting underneath his breath and looking at he's like, he's like, dude, he says, you're okay, he says, please squeeze my hand. And I just delayed it for a little bit, and I squeezed his hand, and he's like, oh, shit. I said, the same joke, and once we got back in the back room, I go, dude, I says, you did not do the most basic principles of professional wrestling. I'm supposed to protect you, and you're supposed to protect me. You didn't do your job. Hey, Dan, so looking forward a little bit, do you have anything else on the agenda as far as wrestling bookings or, or fighting bookings coming up this year? Yes, in fact, uh, in the month of May alone, well, I've only got really one professional booking that's taking place, but I'll be back in, uh, I will be back in West Virginia, and uh, I'm, I'm just uh, in, in Wheeling. And I'm, I'm, I'm at a loss right now what the name of the promotion is, but they want to induct me into their uh, professional wrestling hall of fame and have me part of the uh, the show again, just for you know, just kind of honor me for what all I've accomplished in the world of professional wrestling and and all the notoriety I gave to professional wrestling just by bringing the NWA championship belt out to the UFC octagon. I gave a great deal more notoriety, and you're even seeing what Brock Lesnar doing right now in the, the WWE. Uh, now he's going to be wearing all full MMA gear and stuff of that nature. Well, Dan, just before we wrap things up, um, is there any particular way that your fans can reach out to you, either your website or Facebook or Twitter maybe? Yeah, well, it's, uh, I actually have all, all of the above. The probably easiest one is go to uh, dansevern.com. That's my website. It shows you that all the things I've either been involved with in the past or what I have coming up in the future. You know, as you make that come before, I'm a busy person. I've always been a busy person, and I will continue to, to be that, that same busy person. I have a lot of goals and aspirations of what I want to do, even though I will uh, finish my next martial arts career. I'll still be involved with it, 
I'll still be doing some form of competition. I might go back and do some, some amateur wrestling in uh, the freestyle or in, in Greco-Roman. I might want to go into some mass divisions, go for the world championship stuff once again. But these are things that are on my uh, possibilities of, of doing, uh, you know, me, life is competitive, and then, uh, I, I'm, I'm a competitor all the way through and through. But Facebook, I have all the stuff. Go to my website, dancehub.com. That'd be probably your best starting point. Well, fans, you heard it from Dan. Make sure to follow him on his website. That's www.dansevern.com to keep up on his upcoming year of of fighting and appearances and whatnot. And Dan, we thank you for the time and best of luck in 2012 to you. Thank you, Jason. Maybe we'll do a follow-up gig after 2012 just to see how the year wraps up.